History Lecture 47, Rabbi Bleiweiss. We, um, we're just finishing a quick survey of life in the midst, in the middle period of the Second Temple period. We talked about the different diaspora communities. Uh, this is when the Hashmonaim are growing strong. Eretz Israel's borders have not quite reached their ultimate size during this period, but there's prosperity. The Jews are keeping Torah to some degree, even though there's... Um, it's ironic because the, the, the leaders, the Sanhedrin, are, are, are in power, are dominant. Yochanan Herkinus is the, uh, for the time being, he's the Kohen Gadol and the, figurative, the, and the figurehead of the Jews. Um, and yet still, there's this increasing and appalling ignorance in the masses. A lot of the kids just didn't get a proper Torah education. On that level, you could say that that time somewhat reflects our own where we just, the, we don't even know what we don't know. Uh, that, that was really what, uh, that's, that's the s situation as we find it. Um, I was describing at the end of yesterday, I described the Egyptian Jewish community, which is uh, an important and, uh, in this case, a prominent time. Remember the Diaplostum of Alexandria, that massive shul uh, where they used flags, you know, to answer Amen. So there's a figure that we learn about in, in Masechus Yuma named Nicanor, who was a tzaddik, who went down from Yushalayim to Alexandria. I remember I described the artisans of Alexandria were renowned, and he goes to Alexandria to bring not just any eastern gates for the Azara, and if you want to picture the model, what I'm describing is, picture the 15 steps corresponding to the Shir Hamalos. Do you have a picture in your mind of what the Beis uh, Mikdash, the ground plan of the Beis Mikdash is like? There are those, there's the major Azara on the eastern side, and then 15 steps ascending, and then just going into the main Azara where the Mizbeach is, there are these two massive prominent doors. Uh, that's the this is the story of those doors. Um, Nicanor wants special copper doors for the entrance into the Azara where the primary avoda, primary service is done. And he goes all the way to Alexandria to purchase them. And as he's returning, the two doors are on a ship. There is a tidal wave that threatens the ship. And the sailors don't know what to do, so in their, in their panic, they throw one of the doors overboard. And as they start to throw the second overboard, Nicanor ties himself to it. He said, you're going to throw this, you're going you're gonna to have to throw me as well. Uh, and at that point, the wave subsided. And they were saved, but they lost the door. And Nicanor is bereft. And he cries and he davens. They reach Akko, and in another version of the Gemara, it's Yafo, and that's why tour guides can guide reasonably either Akko or Yafo and tell the same story in both places. Um, so uh, the, the main text seems to say Akko, and as they get there, they, uh, they, they, they uh, leave the boat, and they find the other door was under the boat, and it sailed along the entire way, so with great fanfare, they're able to bring, in fact, both doors down to Yushalayim. The other version of the Gemara is a sea creature spat it out. All of these, this whole story seems like it was taken, many of the details of it seems to be taken from which Sefer in the Tanakh. <coughs> Yonah, Yonah, clearly, un un unmistakably. They, um, later on, redesign. remember there were several iterations of the base of Mikdash. When they finally redo the base of Mikdash, under whose auspices? Herod's, Herod. Herod redoes at the end. When they're redoing everything in gold, they 
realize when they get to Nicanor's doors, they say, you know what, we're going to keep these because of the great story, the heroism involved to preserve these doors. Uh, these are the same doors where the woman accused of being a sota would drink the bitter water. It's the same area where after childbirth, women would come with their korban or the mitzvah when it comes for purification as well, uh, would come, up to, come into the base of Mikdash. So this is a major feature of the great story. Yeah, Howard? The excellent question. The, we, we said that the, anything associated with Beit Konyo, the parallel base of Mikdash down in Egypt, if they, any Kohen who served there or any vessel used there, those things were specifically puzzled, disqualified for use in Yushalayim. But uh, craftsmanship, whatever they produced down there, specifically intended for the base of Mikdash, not only was it not disqualified, it was ideal, because they, 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 they were the preferred craftsmen. The Continuing a little bit more about going, what's going on in Chutzlaritz, we know that there are technically no agricultural laws except in Eretz Yisrael, what's called the mitzvos hatluyos ba'aretz, the, the mitzvos that depend on the land. But Chazal, in addition to Bavel, Chazal um, say that in the neighboring lands, lands around Eretz Yisrael, so in Egypt, Amon, Moab, they issued a Durabonan level obligation of trumos and maestros, the various tithings on our produce. Shemitah was held on a Durabonan level uh, as a way of, of, of elevating Eretz Yisrael, but also keeping the Jews in practice for the, when they returned. And of course, the goal was always and remains always returning to Eretz Kodesh. A Jew is not supposed to be in Gullus in any long term uh, way. In Egypt, they're very careful with mitzvahs but they gradually begin to assimilate. Uh, and you realize one of the signs of assimilation is the very fact that they are in Egypt. It's the only diaspora community that the Torah itself prohibits Jews from living there. In fact, there are three lavim diraisa, three negative precepts in the Torah uh, that, that, that spell out why they shouldn't be there. And we're going to address this a great iconic figure in history would open up his letters, his personal letters, famous, does anybody know what I'm about to say? <laughs> yeah. Harani Moshe ben Maimon Haover al Shlosha Lovim Bechol Yom, he wrote. I'm Moshe ben Maimon and I, I transgressed three uh, prohibitions every single day, which he didn't. And when we get to the Rambam, we're going to have to explain this, put this in context somewhat. Uh, in Egypt, also, they begin to forget the Holy Tongue, Lashon HaKodesh. And like many Jews around the world, they did not learn the actual Torah. They learned the Septuagint, which meant that they got a distorted version. Because you remember, not only the 13 changes that, that the Kohani made, but many changes crept in over the years into this Greek translations. They also began writing their own Greek works. Uh, and the base base Honio, do you remember? Not all of you were here. Did you hear about the base Honio? They basically built uh, mini base of Mikdash in Egypt. Really problematic. In other words, it's a bama. It's uh, one of the bamos again, and that caused the Jews of Egypt, at least, to gradually refrain from sending korbanos to Yerushalayim. An extra transgression. They also grew very wealthy. One gets, well, there are certain parallels you could draw between certain American or North American Jewish communities and Egypt. They, even the president. Even the president, you, you, had, you had them you had down in Egypt and you also have Obama in America, it's true. I accept that. The, um, 
Hellenism is something that doesn't just plague the Jews of Egypt. It's all over. It's, it's hard to escape unless you're in the isolated area of Bavel. And in Eretz Yisrael, uh, Hellenism actually reaches the king's own family. He's not called a king yet, technically. He's the figurehead. He's the Kohen Gadol. But Yochanan Hyrcanus learns that his sons have become Hellenized in varying degrees. He has five sons. We're going to learn about a few of them. Uh, and he becomes upset, but not enough to do anything about it. He doesn't take any, he doesn't rebuke them, he doesn't take any official stand. And you remember, Yochanan Hyrcanus himself tried to step across the aisle and bring in Sadducees, Sadducees to help him to rule, to try to make an alliance with them. He tried to placate them. Some of them become his advisors. And as happens, he starts to fall under their influence. Now, here's an idea that I usually mention. I, you might not learn much from me. I realize that. I've been teaching long enough to realize that you don't always leave uh, ideas behind <laughs> after you finish teaching people. But can you do me a favor? If I gave anything over, if you remember anything, at least get one idea. And I've said this before, no? Yeah, it's Rambam, Hilchos Deos. Look it up. For, look it up. Do yourself a favor. Look it up. It's Rambam, Hilchos Deos, Perik Vav. You got it. Because if you look there and you live by that, you'll probably have a good spiritual life. If you don't, and you go against what the Rambam's telling you to do, you probably won't have a good spiritual life. And there, very straightforwardly, based on myriad statements in Chazal, the Rambam teaches that given that people are social creatures, make sure the people in your life are tzaddikim. Make sure that you're surrounded by and good people with good midos because you're going to become like them. And if you do the opposite, if you're surrounding your people with, yourself with mediocre people or evil people, you'll be influenced by them. You can't help it. The strongest of us is ultimately influenced. Rambam says to the point in the second halacha, he says that if you cannot find quality people, go, out, go off and live in a cave. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and here, this point in history now makes the point very, very poignantly and tragically, how important that is. Yochanan Hyrcanus, you remember, started life as a tzaddik. He came from a very righteous father and with a well-intending family. We're just about to celebrate the works of this family when we light the Hanukkah candles in a couple of weeks. And yet, he was influenced by all these people and eventually starts to go in. I, I make the point, I, I, here's, a, here's a one illustration. Can you imagine that you're in yeshiva right now in which every single person got up and came to Shachris, not at 8 o'clock for Baruch Hu, but at, at 7.45 to for all of Pesuket Zimra, and that was the modus operandi of the yeshiva, you realize that you would come to Dabney every morning, or you wouldn't be in yeshiva. This wouldn't be the place for you. We're influenced by our surroundings, so the fact that a lot of people don't come means that you're less likely to come. And you know what? Even if you do come, but you're, you're here and you're such a tzaddik for being here, that you can give yourself a little more leeway to take a morning off. Whereas if you go to a yeshiva where that just wouldn't happen, you'd never take a morning off from davening. What are you talking about? This is my life on the line here. Why would I, never, why, why, why would I ever not come to davening? So that would have a major impact. We're, we're influenced in ways, big and small. You have to, as best you can, seek good friends. Uh, not just loyal friends, but righteous people. Yeah. You're saying if logically, if all the mediocre people hung out with the righteous people, then the righteous would become mediocre? No, 
No, that's not your point. What are you saying? If the good hang out with the good, the bad hang out with the bad. The bad can only hang out with the bad. Since it's not a perfect scientific formula, what winds up happening is that people, as a general, if everybody took these words to heart, everybody would be striving up. We'd all be trying to stretch ourselves and be a little bit better. And we'd do our best, since some people are going to be stubbornly wicked no matter what, we would avoid them like the plague. It's true. I just learned one of the Gemara and Sanhedrin. We we learned we learned such a story. We learned such a story that there were some real there were there were bad guys in town, and um, Rabbi Zera uh, actually used to spend time with them and hang out with them, and uh, his colleagues faulted him. He said, "What are you hanging out with these cr- this crowd for?" He didn't hang out with them. He hung out with the Talmud Chachamim, but he didn't close the door to them, and he associated himself with them to some degree so that they should be influenced by him. And when he died, these Rishon, these Biryonim, they're called Biryonim in the Gemara, these bandits, uh, looked at each other and said, all of these years, Rabbi Zera was the one davening for us. Now that he's gone, who's going to daven for us? And they made tshuva. So that they were lifted up by their association. And conversely, we could be, I mean, I remember traveling to a place uh, in the out of town in the tri-state area to uh, uh, the, the community of a Rav who came from a very uh, reputable rabbinic family and tried to, was going clearly at the beginning of his career to be Makarov to upgrade this fringe, this out-of-town kind of community. And it was my impression, not, I wasn't there, I don't know, I can't analyze for sure, but I, I had the distinct impression after spending a holiday with them that um, more than his influence in the community, the community influenced him. His kids uh, didn't look from, they were, wearing, they were not wearing kippahs and they had like heavy metal t-shirts on. Uh, and on Simcha's Torah, they wheeled out a whole bar in the evening and they, they danced. It felt like Simcha despite the Torah. That was, that was the feeling. And, and you realize that even the strongest person is weak in this area. You need, you need to be surrounded by good people, Jake. It's tricky, Kiruv, for exactly this reason, and that's why in my former um, place of work, Erla Elif, which is a professional Jewish Kiruv center, uh, where they send people around all around the world to Kiruv, one of the accepted policies is when you're sending young people out to do Kiruv, you send them out in a group together for precisely this reason, that they're not strong enough to go on their own into the boondocks, but if you send them as a group, as a garin, then they can be mechazik one another, they can have a kola, they can learn together, let's say in the morning, and then go out in the afternoon and do whatever kiruv they need to do, and have an anchor. But you're 100% right, kiruv, if you're just out doing it, ultimately the makarav often becomes makarav. There's no absolute in these matters, but generally that's, that's a form, that's a pattern. And so yeah, you're right, you want to take great care. If anybody here is, 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 is headed for the Rabbanos, for Kiruv, for education at any level, you got to make sure that first take care of yourself, take care of your family, make sure that you have a strong foundation and an anchor, and then you go out. I, I agree with you with your, your premise, Barak. But it's like uh, Rabbi Mir who, uh, who prayed that the Hodlums would die. It's true. And uh, Rory corrected yeah. him, that's true. That's another parallel story. Yeah, and then... Uh, because of that, they became... Also true, also true. So you have to know, you have to be very careful with this. Anyway, he was influenced, Yochanan Herkinus. And the Gemara says, don't trust yourself until the day of your death. You have to be careful. Yochanan Herkinus maybe thought of himself as too much of a of a Tamil um, Chacham. He was, according to this Gemara, Kohen Gadol for 80 years. It's not clear if he ruled for 80 years since the 
the whole Hasmonean dynasty uh, ruled for less than a hundred years, so these are, these are, that's, that doesn't really uh, those dates don't all correspond so clearly. Uh, the Gemara tells in Kedushin tells the following awful story. Uh, it tells the story about Yanai Hamelech, who was Yochanan's son. But a, there's a machlokis in the Gemara about who that refers to. According to Rava, it was referring to Yochanan Hyrcanus, and that Yochanan was also called Yanai. Yanai was one of those interchangeable names, like Pharaoh, that we saw. Um, and according to Abaya, the episode was about the sun. Either way, here is how Hellenism overtook the Hashmonaim. There were rumors, see, this is the story. Do you know the story? It's a pretty important story. There were rumors about Yochanan's mother. Remember that brave woman who on the, uh, on the fortress of Doch called out to her son, don't worry about me, you just get this, you get Talmi and kill him. Remember that episode down in Jericho? So the problem was, nothing she did wrong herself, during the many wars, at, what, at one point, uh, she had, the rumors circulated that she had been held captive in a place called Modi'in, and that's really bad news. Whether they're true or not, it was a rumor that she had held captive. What do we in Halacha assume about a captive woman? Yes. Yeah, bad stuff probably happened to her, because that's what they did to women in captivity. And as a result, she's got the status halachically of a zona, which doesn't necessarily mean prostitute. It could also be the woman that was raped. Um, and such a woman is forbidden to kohanim. But you remember the chashmonim are kohanim. So if she was forbidden to kohanim, and all of you have learned the first uh, sugya in Makos, what, is the, what are the implications? She's forbidden to kohanim. Then Rusha ben chalutza. Then Yochanan Hyrcanus is not really a Kohen. And that's kind of problematic for the Kohen Gadol, don't you think? Okay, do you, do you hear the backdrop to the story? But these were just rumors. These were just rumors. So in the discussion there, the poskim weigh in and say, was he really Ben Grusha, which really effectively means he's a Halal. Al-Pidin, it's also to accept what's called a Hotsa Shemra. You know about a Motsi Shemra now too. Any rumor without proper adus. If there are no witnesses and there were no witnesses testifying to the, to, to the whereabouts of the mother, um, and especially since there's supposed to be a deference to the ruling faction, Yochanan Hyrcanus was the ruler after all, the Chachamim, their official policy was to ignore the rumors. Therefore, Yochanan Hyrcanus was not a halal halachically. But you know what rumors are. They persist, and there's a, there's, there's a residue. People have, a, have this impression of the king. And at one point, Yochanan invites all of the Chachamim and the tzedukim to attend a suda. He's going to have a big banquet. And remember, he's an integrationist. He wants everybody to be part, everybody to be happy. He wants to rule the unified Jewish people. There is in attendance a certain tzeduki, who's really the villain of the story. His name is Elazar ben Puriya. And he said, he's, he starts, he's starting up. And he's whispering all kinds of, uh, of, of, of um, falsehoods into the king's ear. And he starts saying, you know, king, even though Yochanan Hyrcanus wasn't technically the king, you know, ruler, the uh, Chachamim believe the rumors about your mom. And he keeps saying it, and he's clearly goading on, starting up with the king, and, and, and Yochanan Hyrcanus gets angry. And he stands at one point, he puts on the seats, 
one of the eight garments of the Kohen Gadol, by putting on the seats, he can assess who's telling the truth and who's not. And he demands from the Chachamim an answer, do you believe the rumors that are said about me? Because you can be sure the Yochan and Herkinus knew about the rumors. Now, everybody was quiet, because officially, halachically, we don't believe those rumors, so there's nothing to say. But there's always one in the group, no? So the one in the group was a fringe elder, not significant. His name was Yehuda, Yehuda ben Gedidya. He speaks and he said, Yeah, Yochanan. He says the following fateful words. Rav l'cha keser malchus. Hanach keser kohuna l'zaro shel Aram. He said, you know what? It's enough that you're wearing the crown of the kingship. Leave the crown of the priesthood to the, to the legitimate seat of Aharon. Them's fighting words. You, you, you perceive the chutzpah and what he's saying? Because what he's saying is you're a halal. You're not, you're not even the seed, effective seed of Aharon anymore. He wasn't. He was, he was a Russia. He's a fringe elder who doesn't belong there. But he spoke up. Sometimes we have people like that too. They sometimes ruin it for everybody else. What's that? He wasn't. He wasn't a legitimate king either. No question. So, um, so I'm abbreviating the story. The king is incensed at this point. He is going to have Yehuda Yehuda ben Gedidya's tongue for his insubordination. He says, "You're morid b'malchus. You're rebelling against the kingship." We've seen it in different times in history. That was a, a capital offense. And Elazar, the Tzaduki is in the background, he's thrilled. The plan is going exactly as he, as he hoped it would. Uh, he continues to go to the uh, Yochanan An, and the king says to all the Chachamim, he says, Yehuda ben Gedidya is going to be punished for his insubordination. Chachamim, Chazal, tell me what should his punishment be? And they come out with the Psak, they have a halachic discussion, and they say, Malkos, he deserves lashes. And the king is now incensed at them. He says, lashes? They're more in Bimal, he's more in Bimalchus, he should die. And you know what? Because you poskined lashes, you should die too. The king is poised, he's ready to kill off all of the Chachamim in attendance, which is the, the lion's share, the majority of the wise men of, those, of his day. And he realizes the implication, and Elazar's on top of him. He says, yeah, yeah, kill him, kill him, kill him. Because that's what Tzedukim want, want, want supremacy. They want to push the Prushim, all of the, uh, the good guys, the Jews, uh, to the side. And, 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 and they, the Tzedukim want to come out on top. And he says, yeah, kill them. Um, and then the king suddenly has a moment of truth. And the king is still, Yochanan Herkinus is still holding somewhat within his righteousness. And he asks, he says, V'soyra ma'seheyaleha. What will become of Tyra if we kill off Chazal? Lest it be forgotten from this point from the Jewish people. Because you remember, do you remember the consequence of his words? We don't have prophecy anymore. What is the sole bearer of our tradition, if not the Messiah, the rabbis themselves? We don't have a Talmud yet. It's all going ish mipi ish, man to man, in terms of uh, our tradition. If you kill off Chazal, you're killing off Torah. You're killing off the Jewish people. Elazar responds, a classic Sadducee response, and one can hear this perhaps in Karaite movement or later Reform movement. He said, not a problem, sir. See, the Torah is written, and it's available in the corner for anybody who wants to interpret it. Does this sound familiar? We live in times, just, just look it up in the Torah, you can figure it out. Wait till you learn about the Karaites, wait till you learn about all these other factions. That's exactly what they did. 
without an oral tradition, without living rabbis who were the leader, the leaders of the generation to explain the Torah to us, we have no Torah. Uh, the Yochanan Herkenes is, is satisfied with it. With this, he executes Yehuda ben Gedidya, and then he takes the remaining rabbis who were there, and he has them executed. And he doesn't consider who's going to preserve the oral Torah. And the oral tradition, which we understand is really the essence of the entire tradition. So he kills off almost everybody, but clearly not everybody because we're still here. Clearly now this is a turning point. From this point, Yochanan Herkinus makes a clear alliance. He becomes a Sadducee. He becomes a Tzaduki. He goes out explicitly against the Chachamim. And this begins the... <laughs> precipitous decline of the nation and we begin our slide into Chorban from this moment. The Gemara Sota tells us Baruch Hashem, Yoshua ben Prachia, one of the two leaders of the generations, escapes. He flees, he flees to Alexandria. And down in Alexandria, that's where he teaches Torah. Some say among his students, a young student by the name of Yeshu, who some, some of the later posts say that's Jesus. Was one of was one of Yeshua ben, uh, ben Prachi's students. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, yeah. The the uh, either the yeah, well, it's not clear if this story happened with the son with Yanai, then it's his wife. If it really happened with Yochanan Hyrcanus, which makes more sense, then it happened with his daughter-in-law. His daughter-in-law is a righteous woman named Shlomis. Uh, Shlomis, will, her name will change later on too. Shlom Sion Hamalka. Shlom Sion Hamalka. She's going to be the one, the, the, the one queen in this dynasty. Right now her name is Shlomis. And she actually has a very righteous brother who's one of the leading sages of his, name, of, of his generation. His name is Shimon ben Shetach. I'm introducing some really important figures. We're going to learn more about Shimon ben Shetach. So she hides her brother Shimon ben Shetach so that he escapes Yochanan Hyrcanus' wrath. Nitai Ha'arbeli, who was the other leader, this is the second generation of the Zugos with Yoshua ben Prachia. Nitai Ha'arbeli dies, and we have what's called the Shas Hashmad. It's a time of uh, horrific persecution, where Jews against Jews, where the Tzdukim are on top, and they're persecuting everybody who's of the rabbinic tradition, which means the majority of the Jews, because the Tzdukim were always a minority. And Yochanan Hyrcanus, to put a crown on his achievements, now goes out with a vengeance against everything rabbinic. rabbinic. Many of the previous tekanos that he had supported, he now nullifies. Things to do with trumos and maestros and strengthening of the Shemitah year. He says the only Torah now that's legitimate is the written Torah. We do away with the oral Torah. That's coming now. The base of Mikdash will go to the Tzedukim. And this is the time we've already been mentioning this. It's not for the first time. There have been Hellenized Jews who've taken over the Kundanola in the past. Now it becomes official. So the Kohanim, now virtually with, with only a couple of exceptions, every Kohen Gadol has bribed his way into the position. Uh, usually they take, they take the, the, uh, the position for a year, Usually because if they were a Russia, they didn't survive going into Lifnaiv and Lifnim into the Kodesh Kadoshim on Yom Kippur. The, uh, that's the nature of the institution. Uh, how do we generally appoint Kohen Gadol? How does that work? 
usually the Sanhedrin does it, and there's a halachic procedure. It's done in a, in a part of the Beis HaMikdash called the Lishka Parhedrin, which means the king's ministers. And the, it was only named this from this period, the Parhedrin is the king's ministers, because it was not being done by due halachic process. The Mishnah Yuma talks about this. It's not from Hashem. Hashem really didn't want these people to be Kohen Gadol. Usually they were wealthy, wicked people uh, who wanted the, the cover, they wanted the, the perks of the job. Now, ordinarily, the Kohen Gadol, there are a lot of halachas. So the Mishnah says the nation is never allowed to see him naked. Uh, we can't watch him getting a haircut. A Kohen Gadol is not allowed to be in a Suda with the commoners. They're royalty, as far as we're concerned. Uh, and indeed, in Bais Rishon, for the 410 years of Bais Rishon, how many people served in this position of Kohen Gadol? Twelve. That's how righteous they were. Each of them had longevity, uh, and they were righteous. Ooh, that doesn't make sense. I know, it doesn't make sense. But that's what the Gemara says, unless you say that they had a Rikus Yomim, which a lot of people had in those days. Uh, longevity. They, they had long lives. So that's during the entire first temple period, 12 Kohen Gadols uh, all together, all tzaddikim. During Baisheni, over 300. Okay, that's a stark contrast. Baisheni lasted 420 years. So 300 Kohen Gadols, and now consider this also. We had we had Shimon Tzaddik who was 40 years on the job. Yochanan Herkinus himself was either 40 and some say 80. Uh, later on, we're going to have Yishmael ben Fiavi, who's another tzaddik who's 10 years. But if you, if you do the math quickly, that means that at least 90 years were taken up. That means we're only left with some, some uh, 300 years to divide out among 300 Kohanim. Most of them did not survive the year. Some of them were even shorter. Which of the Kohen Gadol that lasted for 80 years and then went off to death? That's Yochanan Herkinus. That's what we're describing right now. This is Yochanan Herkinus. Yeah. Uh, of course, the institution would be very profitable for the kings. Sure, we'd be delighted to have, because, you know, with such a nice turnover and so many deaths on the job, uh, so there was plenty of room to be bribed. You just had to take your, you, like in one of those bakeries, you take a number kind of thing. You know, take a number to be Kohen Gadol. Your, your, your time will come too. Only, I, you know, I wouldn't be the, the um, life insurance broker for those people who were seeking this job. Not, not a long life expectancy. The Zohar tells us that they tied, they came, they were so evil that the, they, the halacha evolved that they tied a golden rope around the Kohen Gadol's leg when he went on Yom Kippur so that when they died, you couldn't go into the base, you couldn't go into the Kodesh Kadoshim. Instead, they dragged out his body. How did they get the first body that died? That's a good question. I don't know. Apparently, maybe they knew, they anticipated, and maybe they already had the golden rope if there. Kahalin, how did they get the body out at all? What's that? If that Kahalin, how did they get the body out at all? Got oh, he's dead. Oh, what a, dead. Good, what a good question. Uh, Miss Stama, they had, the ro- <laughs> they had a long rope, and it was other people who did it. Right, okay. Must be, you must so say such a thing. Now, in addition to this, Chazal had to institute a number of changes, especially in Yom Kippur. Uh, they made him take oaths. Uh, Right, and all these oaths made him cry and they cried because of all the mistrust. <laughs> in order to keep a Kohen Gadol awake all night long, and most of these high priests were absolute Amhaaris, they didn't know anything about anything, so they had to read bestsellers to them all night long. So in these days, the bestsellers included Eov, Ezra, Divar Yamim, Daniel, the more and compelling Aramaic sections. In Aramaic sections. In Aramaic sections that they would understand exactly. 
Another ramification, Jake, you asked about this, the Sanhedrin became empty. They either killed all the Chachamim or the Chachamim were in hiding, so who's going to serve in the Sanhedrin? So Yochanan has a solution to that. He appoints Tzedukim. And now you have a wicked, aggressively wicked Sanhedrin who's sitting in authority. They decrease death sentences left and right without proper trials. And the state effectively becomes a Greek state. And the same as it was before the Hashmonim revo- revolted, they destroyed Bate Medrash. Many of the previous decrees were, re- were reinstituted. So keep this in mind as we celebrate Hanukkah. It's, uh, the social revolt was short-lived, as it were. And we went right back to the old way. The themes, the, 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 the deeper ideas of Hanukkah are really what we're focusing on. From this point, Rome really starts to rise and will increase its efforts to assert itself, assert itself over the entire world. And they really have an eye on Eretz Yisrael because, of course, Aesop's son is Yaakov. And, and will never forgive Yaakov for getting his brach and his bechara, like in last week's parsha, two weeks ago parsha. And uh, Rome, Rome, we're going to increasingly hear from. Now, Yochanan has five sons. And all of them are tzeduki. All of them, uh, in varying degrees, are tzeduki. The three whose names you should know are Yehuda Aristobulus, Antigonus, to a lesser degree, and finally Alexander Yanai, who we'll hear about. Now, Yochanan hates his son Yanai because he has a dream once that Yanai was going to replace him. And it's a true, it's a, it's, it's a true dream. So he has Yanai exiled to the Galilee. Yochanan, we're not quite sure when he died. Some say it was 92 before the Common Era. Some say it's 94 before the Common Era. Something like a century before the Common Era. He's the first of the Hashmonaim to die a natural death. All, all, certainly uh, his father and, 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 and his uncles all died these unusual deaths. And he appoints his son Aristobulus, Yehuda Aristobulus, as the next ruler Aristobulus is actually the first one to take the official title king. He'll continue his father's policy of trying to expand the country's borders. He goes as far north as Sor and Sidon, which today you'd find in Lebanon. He continues the policy of forced conversions under the advice of the Tzedukim. Now, he had, before Yochanan Hyrcanus became a Tzeduki, before the whole story I told you earlier today, so um, he arranged his son, Aristobulus' marriage to this righteous woman, this, uh, this, uh, her family, her brother was Shimon ben Shetach. So she, claimed, she, came, she came from great pedigree, she was a big Tzedekis, her name, remember, was Shlomis. So she was in this marriage, and her husband became Tzeduki, and she remained a tzedekah. She remained very much on the side of Chazal and the rabbis. And she's stuck in this marriage. And her husband is a cruel man. It's unprecedented. He kept his own mother and, uh, and his brother Alexander Yanai in chains uh, because he was concerned they would rebel against him. His mother died of hunger. That's how cruel the son was. The only compassion that he, has in, that he has at all is for his younger brother, Antigonus. Aristobulus loved his brother, Antigonus. Notice all the heavily Greek <coughs> names. He gave Antigonus kavod, and he appointed Antigonus as the general over the army. Uh, these are not major figures, and they don't play a major role. comes crashing down soon enough. Aristob- Aristobulus becomes ill, some say two, some say four years after he becomes king. 
So his, his, his uh, monarchy is short-lived. And near the end, his advisors tell him, you know that beloved, it's all intrigue with the Greeks. It's all power plays. So remember that your beloved little brother, Antigonus, he's trying to plan a coup. He wants to overthrow you, king. Now, Antigonus was not. Antigonus is loyal to his brother. He comes back on a, he just came from a big mission oppressing the, the other Jews. He's at Spooky as well. And um, when he returns, he hears that his brother has fallen very gravely ill. And he rushes, still in uniform, he rushes in to visit the king. He first wants to go to the Heichal and the base of Mikdash. And to realize that Stukim are complicated. We talked about the Stukim a little bit. They still believe in Hashem and they still daven. They've just invented their own version of the religion. They, they hate like Chazal. Like it's, They're the ones who rejected the, the oral Torah, right? They rejected the oral Torah, but they daven. So he goes into the Heichal and he davens to Hashem that his brother should get well. Uh, the um, the advisors come to Aristobulus and say, "Oh, your brother's here, and the fact that he's here is proof that he's trying to overthrow you." And the king commands, he says, "You kill anybody who's trying to come in and kill me and murder me. You kill anybody first who's dressed in official uniform." So the messengers go to Antigonus and they, t- they, they, they lie to him. And they say, Antigonus, the king wants to see you, how you look in your uniform. So come, he wants to see how cute you look. So come on in your uniform. So of course, as Antigonus, as Antigonus steps forward in the uniform, the, the guards right around Aristobulus see him. And of course, they, uh, he, he rushes to the king's palace and the guards at the king's command murder the little brother. Don't shed too many tears. He was a big Russia. They kill him. He was a big Russia, but they kill him. When Aristobulus realized what's happened, he screams, a horrific scream. He realizes as he screams, he spits up blood. He spits out blood, and he too falls to his death, childless. The way the scene is described is um, his blood spills and mixes with Antigonus's blood on the courtyard of the uh, of the base of Mikdash. Yeah, nice, nice, nice and uh, gory here. Um, and now, who's going to rule? Now, Yochanan Hyrcanus, two years earlier, four years earlier, has passed away. Uh, now, the uh, in one fell soup, Aristobulus, who's childless, and his little brother Antigonus die. And so, the, the um, new king emerges from his prison cell. His name is Alexander Yanai. And this is what happens. The widow of Aristobulus is Shlomis, and she's 39 years old, and she does, what is the halacha? When, uh, when a widow is childless, we call that yibum. Yibum. She falls, yibum to the brother, Yanai, who's 22 years old, big age difference between them. She's 39, he's 22. Yanai was in prison. He's another brother. So he's in prison. When he marries her, effectively, that releases him from prison and it makes him the king because now he's the queen's husband. Alexander Yana, that's his name. Oh, Alexander Yana. He's a Tzaduki as well. And he's worse than everybody who came before him, as you're about to hear. He's a, he's a bad guy. Uh, the year is approximately 90 before the Common Era. Alexandriana becomes king. His wife Shlomis takes a second name, Alexandra, taking on her new husband's her new husband's name. 
he is a violent warrior. He's a stuki. He actually killed off another one of his brothers. Certainly no bet, no improvement on Aristobulus. He has the distinction, probably the best thing you could say for Alexandriani, he expands the borders of Judea to its largest size. It's the borders, when we went to the museum last week or two weeks ago, I mentioned, I showed you a map. His borders are considered the borders of the Bryce de Tchumin, which is considered for most purposes the halachic borders of Eretz Yisrael. So that if the, if the land falls within those borders, Shemitah is observed, Tumas and Maisus is observed, and on the other side of the borders, not. How big? Well, the problem is we have a record of the Bryce de Tchumin in a few places, particularly in, uh, in Tosef de Shviz, I can give you the references, um, but on paper, it's very hard to go from the two-dimensional description in the text of the Tosefta to a full-fledged map. So they describe the places, but who's to say that what we think of as the places today is what they were referring to in the Brysa. So they didn't leave an actual map. What is very interesting, and Ilan, you're interested in, in, in archaeology, so this is, this is a point of interest. There is in um, today's kibbutz, which is a kibbutz dati up in the Beishan Valley, they discovered an ancient ruin, uh, an ancient city of Rehov, a map in mosaics that seems to be a map of the Bryson Kumin. But that doesn't have any halachic weight, it's simply a point of curiosity. Um, since in the end of the days, the exact borders remain a little ambiguous uh, since no drawing was included in this map. Elad is not part of that, right? Elad is definitely south of Beersheba. Is already outside of classic Eretz Yisrael. So they don't keep. Uh, they don't keep. Um, Correct, unless the product, the produce is imported from Eretz proper Eretz Yisrael. Yeah. So why don't they? Why don't we just all get our? There is such a thing from what they call the Arab, it's not just a lot as well. And there's some discussion there. Remember, we said that Durabanan Chazal also said there's Shemitah Durabanan outside the areas in Ammon and Moab, and so that complicates the issue somewhat. It's not quite as clear cut as I let on. The um, Alexander Yanai, then in conclusion, he uh, he rules with a strong arm, he oppresses you, Shalayim, he's not a friend of the Chachamim. But he's got this great wife at his side, and he's got this righteous brother-in-law now in the form of Shimon ben Shetach. And um, fortunately, those Chachamim are indeed, as their name suggests, Chachamim. And the Tzedukim, not necessarily. So we're going to see from the inside how the Chachamim will uh, very slowly subvert and try to reassert uh, themselves as a power in the Jewish people. And again, we have, a, we have our little sister in the king's palace, the wife of the, the king herself, uh, will certainly serve, uh, serve an important function in these uh, intrigue-filled and important days of, as the Second Temple period starts to wind down. And, and uh, we're, we're over halfway through the Second Temple period, and we'll, we'll talk about the end of the Hashmonaim tomorrow.